So tonight I'm giving the fourth talk in a five-week series on meditating on the body. And the title of my talk is Seeing the Body as a Body. So seeing the body as a body is seeing what it is as well as what it is not. Seeing the body as a body means not taking this body to be me or mine, but instead seeing it as what it is, which is an organic um, conglomeration of body parts and processes that is ultimately empty of a true self. One way to do this is actually to contemplate uh, the different parts of the body and its processes. The effect of concentrated contemplation on the body is direct seeing into its impermanent and empty nature, which serves to help break the the infatuation we have with the body and also uh, break the bond of identification with the body. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about some of the contemplative practices that can bring about this knowledge of not-self on a non-intellectual level, um, insight knowledge that comes from directly seeing the truth of not-self that's apart from intellectually knowing it. So mindfulness of the body is the uh, first foundation of the four foundations of mindfulness as outlined by the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta. And in this sutta, the Buddha describes six ways of contemplating the body as a body. This phrase, the body as a body, has also been interpreted as uh, the body in the body and um, the body in and of itself. So what this means is that we contemplate the body without any external context. Um, For example, uh, whether it's uh, good or bad, strong or weak, beautiful or ugly, or in comparison um, to any other body or any societal norm. So we simply stay with the direct experience of the body in and of itself. You're probably familiar with the first three ways of contemplating the body as, as a body. The first being mindfulness of breathing. The second being mindfulness of the four postures, which is walking Uh, standing, sitting, and lying down, and the third being mindfulness of uh, one's physical action during daily life. So this would be anything that you might do during uh, a day. These first three practices involve being present with what is occurring in the moment. The next three practices, however, involve active visualization of what's occurring, which may or may not be in the present moment. Now, you might be surprised to hear that the Buddha taught practices that involve visualization, except for maybe the loving-kindness practice, which maybe you've heard about. Um, I was surprised when I heard about these practices because I had thought that uh, being in the moment was the primary focus of meditation, at least Vipassana meditation. Um, So, and, and, you know, using visualization thought uh, definitely felt like it wasn't being present. Um, But I understand now that using visualization along with concentrated effort to focus the mind on a specific object uh, can can provide a way of penetrating the truth of that object and the truth of um, the characteristics of existence, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness, or not-self. 
So the other three practices of mindfulness that involve uh, visualization, I'm sorry, of mindfulness of the body, which involve visualization, are contemplation of the foulness of the body, which is also known as um, um, meditating on the 32 parts of the body. The next is called the four elements meditation, which is contemplation on the characteristics of the four elements as they occur within the body. The four elements are um, earth, fire, water, and wind or air. The last practice is called the nine charnel ground contemplations, which is uh, the contemplations of the various stages of decay that occur uh, with the body after death. There are several other uh, contemplation practices that use visualization, but tonight I'm just going to focus on the ones relating to mindfulness of the body and specifically on the one uh, regarding the 32 body parts meditation because that's the one I have the most experience with. So... I'm fortunate to live near one of the teachers, one of the lay teachers, who uh, Bob Stahl, who actually teaches this pro- process of the 32 body parts meditation. In 2008, I took, as you've heard, a 35-week class on, on this contemplation that Bob taught at the Santa Cruz, Vipassana Santa Cruz Sangha. The class started in October, and it ran through June of 2009. Um, we met once a week for group practice and then would, pra- and then would practice with a specific set of body parts um, during the week between, between classes. So the formal practice is described in the Vasudhi Maga, which is a, um, an in-depth uh, interpretation of the Buddha's teachings that was written, I think, about 900 years after the Buddha lived. In the formal practice, the body parts are separated into four segments of five parts and two segments of six parts. You might have heard Shaila recite these parts. They are um, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, um, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints or synovial fluid, and urine. Um, You might note that the first 20 parts are solid and the last 12 parts are liquids. Of course, there are a lot more than just these 32 parts to the body, and I'm not really sure why the Buddha selected these particular parts, um, but um, this is what came down through the ages. So the practice starts with reciting a set of body parts out loud many times, and then silently many times, and then going through each individual body part and contemplating it, um, noting five things its color, its shape, its direction, meaning whether it's above or below the waist, its specific location in the body, and uh, its delimitation, which means um, whatever is immediately surrounding the body part. Um, the The recitation and the reflection 
um, are first done forward, then backward, and then forward and backward. So in the class I took, we took three weeks for each of these. So it took the first three weeks to get through the first set of body parts, first one week going forward, then a week going backward, then a week going forward and backward. Um, and, and in the next three weeks, we did the second part, a segment of second five body parts. And then the next three weeks, at, weeks after that, we combined those two sets and then did that forward, backward, forward, and backward. And then in the next three weeks, we picked up another set of body part. And then the three weeks after that, we combined that with the first two or three body parts. And it went on and on like this um, with, with that pattern. So it took actually about 30 weeks before we were reciting the entire set of body parts in one sitting. Um, there were some occasions in class where we would uh, uh, chant the body parts together, the, the entire long series in the uh, order that I just mentioned, uh, and that would take about 45 minutes. It was a very interesting process that took a lot of discipline to maintain, you can imagine. The practice was uh, sometimes tedious, and sometimes I felt uh, kind of bored with it because it seemed like nothing was going on. But then there were times when the practice was um, really intense and uh, created a lot of agitation because of how much energy it was generating. Uh, sometimes it was even hard to sit through the entire sitting. Um, overall, however, the practice uh, really helped to deepen my ability to concentrate and also uh, produced insights into the nature of the body. For example, I had, um, I had moments of suddenly realizing some truth about the body that um, I'd only intellectually known, such as um, a direct experience of the flexibility of limb uh, muscles. You know, they're not, they're not totally rigid, and they, they bend to some degree. And also, um, I had a direct experience of... of um, body heat being generated by the metabolic process. And it's kind of like, it, these don't really sound like insights because they're common facts, right? But the insight um, was directly seeing this fact rather than, ex or, or experiencing it without the presence of thinking about it. It's that um, non-intellectual knowing that I mentioned earlier a kind of a physical bodily knowing that comes from um, pure observation. Hmm. So as one continues the practice of the 32 body parts meditation, there can be certain parts that become more clear or uh, distinct. And so one can use these, uh, these parts, since they're so clear, to help deepen um, con uh, concentration and insight. One of my favorite body parts to contemplate is the brain. When we got to the brain in class, the, the experience of it really opened up a lot of things for me uh, in my mind. Um, and brain, mind, brain. Hmm. <laughs> I know there's a paradox there somewhere. Um, so at the time, I was doing walking meditation and contemplating the part body parts. And when I got to the brain, the, the image of the brain suddenly opened up in, um, to include the, the spinal column, the entire nervous system, and all the messages that were being sent from my brain throughout my limbs, controlling my motions. Yeah. Um, 
it was it was really interesting. I could sense how my brain was making decisions about which way to move and how to move the body. And I, I, I was able to compare what it felt like to, to move intentionally versus moving autonomically. Um, I could also see thoughts of self arising in my mind and all kinds of mental formations and, and what the brain was kind of doing with them. Um, I, I could sense this, the extreme complexity of the brain, and I actually saw in this period that I'm mentioning, I saw that, that uh, what I considered to be my personality was actually just um, habitual patterns that were conditioned by past experience and, and that had been stored in my brain. It made me question where the self is and whether there's a difference between the brain and the mind. So I also studied the body parts during the class through um, books and uh, um, videos. And this is something that the Buddha also taught. Um, although in the Buddha's time, it was, it was done by visiting charnel grounds. Um, did I mention that charnel grounds are places where um, bodies are placed uh, after death so um, people could actually go and see deca- decaying bodies in the Buddha's time? Um, that's not true today, I don't think, but it might be. Certainly not here. Um, our teacher Bob was also able to take us to Cabrillo College Anatomy Lab, where we were able to explore several cadavers that were in the process of being dissected. And uh, that experience really helped to clarify the image of the body parts in my meditations um, after that. After I finished the class with Bob, I continued uh, the practice with some guidance from Shila. Um, I went from seeing my own body parts internally to seeing the body parts of others externally. And this is also part of the 32 parts practice. Um, At one point, I worked only with the skeleton. And I used that as my object of meditation in a jhana retreat, in part of a jhana retreat that Shila taught. Is there anybody that doesn't know what jhana is? Cool. Okay. So when you... Oh, there were. I'm sorry. Okay. So jhana is a specific concentration practice in which uh, one becomes absorbed in the object of meditation to the exclusion of everything else. So unlike uh, mindfulness where you watch things arise and pass away... For jhana practice, you you disregard all other stimuli except the meditation object itself. So when using the body body parts as a jhana practice, one uses only a single body part. And after extensively meditating on that body part, one shifts to uh, contemplating the repulsive aspect of the body part. when I did this with the skeleton, I, ex- uh, I expected to have to uh, generate images of like bloody flesh stuck to the skeleton or something really gross to, to like bring up uh, a sense of re- repulsiveness because I didn't really consider the skeleton as being that repulsive. But I was quite surprised to find that when I shifted to repulsiveness, it actually arose quite quickly and um, 
And what I found to be repulsive about the skeleton, to my surprise, was simply its um, imperfect and unreliable nature. In jhana practice, one eventually drops the um, body part altogether and then stays focused on the aspect of repulsiveness. I learned through that practice that repulsiveness and aversion are not the same thing. So with aversion, there's um, a rejection of experience and a desire to change what's going on. Whereas with uh, repulsiveness, there's a kind of um, experience of disgust but it's not coupled with any rejection of the, of the thing or, or any desire to change it. So the Buddha taught the 32 body parts practice to break the enchantment with the body and as an antidote to lust and also for insight into emptiness. He also taught it as the basis for um, the four elements ma- uh, meditation Um, also to gain insight into emptiness. As to breaking one's enchantment with the body, the Buddha refers to the parts of the body as filth, impurities, or unclean things, um, depending on the translation. So the instructions for contemplating the 32 body parts starts like this. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair uh, bounded by skin as full of many impure, kind of impurities. Thus, in this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, and so on. So the word impurities might make you think that this, is, uh, this practice is putting down the body or calling it disgusting. Well, in a way, it is trying to bring clarity into the unbeautiful nature of the body. But the Buddha wasn't being judgmental when he said that the body is full of impurities. I mean, consider the body. It's subject to decay and disease. If we don't clean it on a regular basis, uh, our hair gets greasy and smelly. The body starts to stink because it's prime real estate for, for bacteria. If we don't brush our teeth, we get bad breath. Our feces stinks because it's composed of rotting organic matter. We have parasites in our intestines that feed off the decaying matter that flows through the digestive system. Um, yeah, if we get cut or injured there's, uh, and don't tend to it properly, the body will start creating uh, oozy, smelly pus. I mean, it is pretty disgusting, right? <laughs> it's kind of odd to think that humans think this, this bag of skin full of squishy organs and liquid is, is somehow beautiful. We did think that. Yes, <laughs> then we still do. Uh, so we might think there are certain parts of the body that are beautiful. You know, in general, okay, it's not. Maybe some parts, like a beautiful set of teeth or, or long, silky hair or smooth and soft skin. But if you take these parts and you separate them from the body and look at them um, individually in isolation they're really no longer beautiful. Like if they're all sitting out on a table, are you going to call them beautiful? <laughs> so the idea that this body is beautiful or any part of it is beautiful is, is a concept that we impose on the body. It has no basis in reality. There's no part or element of the body that's inherently beautiful the way a pearl or a gem might be. 
um, all parts of the body when seen as they actually are, are not the least bit beautiful or even attractive. Now, some of us might not have a hard time uh, breaking the enchantment with our own bodies, but might still, uh, yeah, because our culture is, uh, is pretty good at convincing us that our body parts or that our bodies are uh, in, imperfect. But we might still cling to the uh, idea that someone else's body is beautiful, you know, enviously wishing that we had uh, some other body than our own. Well, this practice of seeing the body exactly as it is not only breaks the any enchantment with our own body, but with all bodies as well. We see that all bodies are made up of the same unattractive parts, that they all have uh, the same uh, diseases, they're subject to decay, and uh, seeing this body in and of itself and looking at each individual part can develop equanimity toward all bodies not seeing one's own nor another's body as any better or, di- or worse than any other body. In the second visualization practice I mentioned, using the 32 body parts as the basis for contemplating the four elements, one does this by identifying the elements and their characteristics within each body part or within the body in general. And this practice is about ultimately seeing that all material phenomenon are made up of the same uh, four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, and that these elements, too, are empty of a self. There are 12 characteristics to the four elements. Um, the uh, The earth has six characteristics, Hardness, roughness, smoothness, softness, I'm sorry. Yeah, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, and lightness. And the earth element is basically whatever is solid. So with regard to the 32 body parts, this would be the first 20 parts. The other three elements have two characteristics each. The water has the characteristics of flowing and cohesion and is whatever is watery. So this would be the last, um, the liquid parts of the body. Fire has the characteristic of heat and cold and is whatever, uh, and is whatever process that generates heat that uh, causes aging and that consumes. So for example, the um, process of digestion contains the fire element. The air element has the characteristic of pushing and supporting and is whatever is airy. So, for example, would be um, gas that re- that's in the stomach or in the intestines or the air that enters the lungs or any kind of air in between the organs within the body. It's also um, referred to as the winds that course through the limbs, which means any or that which um, causes motion or movement. So to view the elements in the body, one could go through each of the 32 body parts and note its primary um, element or its elemental characteristics. Or one could go consider the characteristic or element and then scan the body and note which part uh, falls into that category. 
Um, I should mention that um, all physical phenomenon actually has all four elements in it. It's just that one of them will be predominant. Um, There are a lot more details to this uh, practice of mindfulness of the four elements that uh, I'm actually not familiar with. I've started practicing with the four elements, but not extensively. Uh, The last meditation, visualization meditation, involves the charnel ground meditation. And um, like I mentioned, this is uh, visualizing the body, various stages of bodily decay after death. Um, The purpose of this contemplation is to recognize that this body also is subject to to that fate, which brings, uh, gives rise to the truth of impermanence and um, also can generate a feeling of urgency for practice and for liberation. So the stages of decay that one visualizes are bloated, livid, festering, being gnawed and devoured by various creatures, a skeleton with bloody flesh stuck to it, a skeleton with no flesh but still held together by sinews, skeleton bones scattered around, and bones aged by time and bleached by the sun. Um, And I can't say much more about this practice because I haven't actually worked with it yet. So these practices are great for developing concentration and gaining insight, but I think we can also gain insight through contemplating the body in and of itself in our daily life. Some of you have probably done um, mindfulness of eating practice, where with each bite you notice um, the smell of the food, how it looks, its temperature as you put it in your mouth, its texture, its flavor, how it breaks down when you chew it, how it feels going down the esophagus. Have you ever noticed how your tongue and lips move when you chew? The tongue actually goes back and forth, pushing food up and this way and that way and around, and it's constantly in moving when you're eating. It's it's kind of amusing to watch. Um, Or have you ever noticed the continuous flow of saliva that comes up under the tongue when you eat, or even all day long? It's It's a constant process. Or maybe visualize what happens to food when it enters the stomach and starts to break down further or as a, how it clumps into um, feces as it travels through the intestines. When you taste food, maybe consider what's going on physiologically. There are taste bugs on the tongue that register chemicals in the food, and the contact of food and tongue are registered in the mind or the brain, which cognizes flavor, and the perception of, say, pasta arises. There are molecules being released from the food that contact thousands of scent receptacles in the nose. And this contact is registered in the brain, which cognizes uh, scent and the concept or the, um, uh, what did I say? the perception of, say, tomatoes and spices arise in the, uh, arises in the mind. Any kind of sense stimuli is the result of contact between a sense uh, uh, organ, which is the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and the object that is sensed, which is uh, form, sound, scent, flavor, tangibles, or mental formations. 
So whenever there's contact, it's registered in the brain as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. For example, getting stuck by a pin is distinctly unpleasant. Um, Getting into a hot bath is for most people pleasant. And the feeling of clothing on your skin is probably neutral, meaning it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. One of the functions of the brain is to create pathways that move us toward that which is pleasant and away from that which is unpleasant. This is a, a basic survival function. Well, somehow this pattern of moving toward and away from has become associated with the self in the sense that um, there's something that's apart from the body that actually prefers one thing over another. And for some reason, the mind is um, compelled to protect this sense of self as if survival depended on it. And uh, maybe this is a result of socialization. I don't really know. But I think possibly it's, uh, it's this need to protect the self that causes the brain to create pathways that are actually counter to physical survival by going toward that which may be unpleasant or away from that which is pleasant. So consider at what point does a pleasant and unpleasant feeling become clinging in the form of desire and aversion? Consider also that what we think of as the mind is also part of the body. We know that there are three main parts of the brain that um, control the major functions of emotions, habits, and um, rational thinking. Uh, information and experience is uh, stored in the brain, and the brain creates associations and connections between all these, uh, presumably for survival, but I don't know if that's the sole function of the brain. We also know that the mind is affected by what we put in the body. Too much coffee or sugar can um, agitate the mind and then create dullness later. Uh, Alcohol affects the uh, perceptions and state of mind, Um, Sickness and fever can cause dullness or confusion. Um, If you don't sleep or eat uh, for a couple of days, your mental faculties will be impaired. So which state represents the real you? The healthy one or the impaired one? If they're both you, then is part of you missing if only one state is present? If those states are not you, but they are happening to you, then where is the you that is being affected? Is it just the body? If the body is you, then are you simply matter and uh, brain function? Through science, we've learned that all cells in the body will die and be completely replaced within a seven years period. So which set of cells is the real you? Consider also that all that you do is conditioned. The the conditions may be genetic or environmental. Nonetheless, everything is conditioned. We all have physical patterns conditioned by our body structure, by the way we work, um, whether or not we exercise, and uh, the aging process. Have you ever noticed how a small child, say a five-year-old boy, will walk exactly like his father, with the same gait, 
general stance, um, even have the same idiosyncrasies as his father. So even at this very young age, our, habitu- our, our physical patterns are um, conditioned. How many tastes for certain foods and drinks have we had to condition ourselves to acquire? When I first tasted coffee, I didn't like it, but I find it very pleasant now. I had to condition myself to like it. So how much of what we think and what we consider as being part of our personality is really just this lifetime of conditioning that has been logged in the brain and is being repeated out of habit? When we see that the body is this conglomeration of sense organs that registers sensation in the brain as either pleasant, painful, or neutral, and that this process is conditioned, and that absolutely no experience or physical form is stable and unchanging, then how can we take this body or its processes to be me? For whatever we identify with as me is gone in the next moment, second, week, year, or decade. So when sensations or, say, emotions arise in the body, rather than identifying with them, see them as just bodily functions, chemical, physiological reactions to external stimuli or to internal thoughts. They're temporary, impermanent, and constantly changing. When you start to identify with a bodily sensation or an emotion, try visualizing what's going on in the body. Imagine which nerves are getting stimulated. Note the temperature in the body. Um, Locate the muscles that are tensing or releasing and actually see how the muscles contract and expand. Picture the heart pumping and see the blood flowing through the veins. This shift of attention from my emotion or the story around the, the, the emotion or the sensation Uh, to the body functions themselves can create the necessary space for insight into not-self. So when your attention is pulled away from your meditation object, think of it as just the brain doing its thing, moving toward what's pleasant or away from what's unpleasant. When emotions arise and distract, think of them as um, just chemicals being released in the body. When minor aches and pains come arise, um, they're just nerves being stimulated. When thoughts arise, it's just the brain creating associations. It's just vibrations hitting the eardrum. It's just nerves in the skin picking up the air temperature. It's just photons stimulating the optic nerves. It's just uh, methane moving through the intestines. (laughs) We, We don't need to identify with what goes on in the body. This body is simply a a conglomeration of organic parts and processes. So the point of contemplating uh, the body is not to stimulate the intellect or to intellectually understand what's going on within it. It's to um, investigate the true nature of the body and the mind. And by clearly seeing what it is, we see what it is not. And we stop, and when we stop identifying with the body, mind, and its functions, then we can free ourselves from clinging. And then the mind is more malleable. 
it's more willing to be directed toward more important things, such as nibbana and liberation. Uh, so we have a few minutes left. That's my talk. And if um, I'd like to open it up for any questions or comments anyone has. Yes, Jennifer. I found myself um, really reacting to this notion of pure and impure that you mentioned. Um, and especially when you said something about gems and pearls being obviously more pure and that bodies can't be pure, hmm. I was thinking, well, what what does pure mean? What does impure mean? And I understand that um, apparently Buddha didn't think that women were pure enough to teach. And, and I'm just wondering, is pure and impure even a useful um, dichotomy to contemplate. Mm. I mean, I can understand that gems and pearls might be more homogeneous in terms of their composition compared to an organic organism. Well, I think but that... I don't understand the analogy between a body and uh, an inorganic solid like a gem. Mm. Uh, um, I, don't, I think the, the reference to the pearl and the gem were... were um, in reference to beauty and not necessarily purity. Now, purity is a concept um, that, hmm, I don't think purity is a concept that maybe fits into this, but impurity, I mean, like I mentioned, impurity was also uh, um, translated as filth or, or um, unclean things. Um, but then what would, what would a clean or unfilthy thing be? A perfect thing, which doesn't exist. Qualitatively, I think it's a very literal uh, uh, meaning. So impurities would be um, literally like if you had um, gold and you were, you know, purifying gold, if you had a lot of um, slag in it or something like that, it would be impure. but on that literal sense, but not not taken out into into any kind of um, judgment about um, personality, but but just judgment about the true nature of flesh and blood and bone and and hair and you know this this material form. It's not a judgment about um, gender or or sex or you know any any kind of Context. There's no context put around it. It's simply about this physical form. Does that help? Um, well, I'm still questioning the, the notions of beauty or ugliness and purity and impurity when applied to the true nature of the body. Because I don't think any of those words would really describe true nature. Hmm. I don't think you could say something is truly beautiful or truly ugly because it's always in the eye of the beholder. It, it is a value judgment, just by its very nature. To declare something beautiful or ugly has to do with your relationship to it. Um, that's part of the, dare I venture there, um, that's part, I think, that that's part of the enchantment that the Buddha is trying to break. Um, this this concept that the body can be 
pure, that it's that it's that it's um, sub- subjective. Um, you know, the, the idea that it that it might be beautiful um, is is I think in the uh, Buddha's eyes was was um, enchantment with the body. But then, does that mean if it's not beautiful that it's ugly? No. Because those are both um, judgmental, those are both value judgments. And it's not, it's not really a value judgment. It's just about, uh, maybe I shouldn't use true nature of the body. Um, I don't know what, how else to put it, though. Um, the phrase, seeing it as it actually is. Mm-hmm. Seeing it as it actually is. It's kind of like my experience when I was... Uh, fo- Focusing on the repulsiveness of the of the skeleton, I got a direct, strong sense of repulsiveness just from its imperfect nature. The fact that it's subject to um, being injured, it's it's weak. It's not it's not perfect. It's not you know completely symmetrical. Um, it has imperfections, and that that was literally repulsive when I was doing the practice. But couldn't you also practice only the opposite about um, the awesome wonder of it? Well, I do have to say that when I was doing the body parts practice, I I was quite enthralled um, with the intellectual part of it. I mean, I know that that's not the purpose of the practice, but but uh, it did it did fascinate me um, the complexity of the body. And the, the the intricate interworkings of everything, and um, yeah, there were there were some really beautiful things about it. Dare I say? That that can be as much I don't know what word to use the reality of it, the truth of it, the, as the corruptibility and the repulsiveness. I mean, one is it better than the other? Right, and you're talking about kind of different things here because um, the the fascination with it and the beauty of it is referring to the concept of 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 how it works. It's not referring to to flesh, blood, bone. I mean, that you have to put together a mental construct of this this beautiful thing, you know. Um, how it works together and how intricate it is. It's, it's all intellectual. But when you actually start um, directly experiencing it without the intellect, then it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother experience altogether. Mm-hmm. I think one can look at this just as a methodology for uh, separating oneself and, and learning not to identify. Mm, absolutely. I think we have to take it quite so literally. And even and plus the fact these are these are words that have been translated. Mm-hmm. We don't know what beauty in Pali is really beauty or what else it might be. Mm-hmm. But I think that's beside the point. What I got from what you said. Well, if 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 there's any way that you can get to um, seeing the true uh, the truth of not self in whatever, then that's fine. <laughs> Seriously, because that's that's the ultimate goal is to see. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. On the concept of the word? 
Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a controversial practice to actually talk about because you can see that there are so many reactions to this concept that, that this has uh, impurities and it's not beautiful. Yes? So uh, I, I understand what you meant by trying to see the body parts as repulsive uh, to probably break the cycle of attachment. Mm. But uh, in case a body part is actually diseased, Mm. Um, so is it possible to cultivate a feeling of repulsion towards that? Is it like humanly, humanly possible to uh, cultivate a feeling of repulsion to, towards a body part or a mountain that is already diseased? I mean, or do you not have a tendency to think of it in terms of healing? Uh, that, I think, is... Um, do you just accept it as diseased and uh, I didn't quite... Uh, well, the the I want to be careful about the context because I don't want to um, imply that that um, that we should remove compassion for any any um, illness at all. I mean, this is a very specific uh, practice that that I guess you know in the Buddhist time this was taught a lot for for breaking um, the, uh, sensual lust. And these bhikkhus, you know, they were they were celibate, so they needed something really, really strong. So, so you know, that puts it a little bit in context. Um, if one is doing the practice, one can visualize um, a, a something, a diseased part, a body part, in order to. Well, if you were, if I were to practice being uh, one of, take it into jhana, I could. Um, use a disease to, to generate a, a sense of repulsiveness if I needed to. But I would not um, try and do that with an actual person or, or with, with my own body part. If I'm trying to care for something, there's no way I'd want to... Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to project it out, no. Does he mention anything at all about you know, healing or focusing on disease as disease and... Do you just accept disease as disease, and just, uh, I mean, or is that a whole different uh, topic altogether? I think it's another topic altogether. Of course, you know, there's, yeah, it's another topic altogether. I have to say that it's five after nine, so that if anybody wants to leave, they can. But I'll be happy to stick around and continue discussion. Thank you very much for for attending. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.